The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The text will be on screen. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. <laughs> on God's power. This is God's word. Please be seated. There it is. All right. Good morning again, everybody. My name is David. Uh, before we get into the sermon this morning, just want to highlight a couple of things for you. First and foremost, our Christmas Eve service is going to be this Friday at 5 o'clock in this building. So if you're in town and you have availability to join us, we'd love to see you there. Uh, second of all, and I'm going to say this multiple times so my hands are completely clean of this, our service on the 26th, the week from today, is not going to be in this building. Again, do not come to this building next Sunday. We're going to be doing a joint service with uh, Antioch Community Church. Uh, they're one of our partner churches, so we're going to be meeting at their building, which I think is called the Waterbury Building. It's in northeast Minneapolis. So uh, again, uh, if you have availability, we'd love to see you there on that Sunday. I don't believe there's a live stream, so if you were hoping to catch that, I don't think Antioch is doing a live stream anymore. So uh, feel free to uh, find another live stream or, or how, excuse me, however you see fit. So. Uh, otherwise, I think that was all I had for announcements, so why don't I pray for our time together, and uh, we'll dig into 1 Corinthians. Um, Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you that your truth comes out of the mouths of babes and infants, God, that you remind us of your gospel anew in so many different ways. Father, I pray uh, over this word this morning that you would help me to speak truth and nothing but the truth, and I pray, Lord, that the Spirit would be among us helping us, equipping us, empowering us to receive your word with gladness and to go forth refreshed and equipped to do so all the same. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Owen is considered by many to be the greatest English-speaking theologian of all time. Owen, for those of you who are unfamiliar with him, was a religious and political figure in 17th century England. He wrote uh, many different works. A few of them that you might be familiar with is The Mortification of Sin, his dissertation on the Holy Spirit, The Glory of Christ, and my personal favorite, and this is the complete title, On Communion with the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation. How about that for a title? Actually, if you're going to get into reading John Owen, that's actually where I'd start, so pick up that book first. But before becoming this fruitful theologian, Owen, like many of us, had his struggles in the faith. Late in his teenage years, Owen struggled with assurance. He was struggling with whether or not he was genuinely a Christian. And in his quest for assurance, he and a friend decided that the best course of action was to go and see a notable preacher nearby. And so they gathered up their things on Sunday morning and they went to the church where this guy was going to be preaching. And lo and behold, they get there and it turns out it was somebody else in the pulpit that morning. Somebody that they've never heard of. You ever done that before? You go to service on Sunday morning and you're like, wow, I'm really excited to see the pastor. And it's like the resident comes up to preach and you're just like... <laughs> 
You're like, what do you do? Do you like stay or do you go home? And, and Owen and his friend had that conversation because they're like, this wasn't the guy that we came to see. And yet John was like, you know what? Let's just, let's stay. Let's just listen. We'll see what happens. And in God's providence, God used this individual sermon, whose name has been lost to church history, to bring John Owen out of his despondency and despair and reminded him of his right standing before God. And this laid the foundation for the faith of one of the greatest theologians in church history. What makes for an impactful sermon? Does it need to be spoken by a famous individual, an eloquent individual, someone charismatic and wise? Does it need to be funny? Or does it need to be completely serious and borderline monotone throughout its entirety? What gives preaching its power? In Corinth, we've talked about this a little bit, but a problem going on with Corinth was there was an idolatry of human speakers, an idolatry of human figures. This was a community of people who was latching hold of human beings rather than latching hold to Christ. In their day, they said things like, well, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Peter. In our day and age, we might hear similar things with people saying, I follow John MacArthur, or I follow John Piper, or I follow Tim Keller. And these misunderstandings that they have and that we have grow from a wrong view of preaching, a wrong view of the way that God uses preaching in our lives. But I think what Paul is going to do here in chapter 2 is correct our understanding and remind us that the power of God in preaching is not found in our rhetoric or in our words or in our wisdom, but in the proclamation of his son and his son crucified. That's where preaching has its power. And this applies to us not only because we're people who maybe craft or take in sermons on Sunday, but even more so because our calling as Christians is to be evangelists, not just to others, but also to ourselves. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. So go with me to verse 1. Paul writes, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So Paul is calling back to something he just talked to us about in chapter 1, that the people in Corinth were basically a ragtag group of unimpressive people. There were no mathematicians or philosophers or people of great stature. They were unimpressive. They were average by definition. But Paul says here in verse 1, well, I was just as unimpressive as you were. I came to you, and I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. He goes, my preaching wasn't anything to write home about. I didn't come to you sounding all impressive with lengthy arguments and well-spoken speeches. No, he says, I came to you in weakness, in great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise or with persuasive words. Paul goes, I was shaking like a leaf when I was speaking to you. I was afraid, my hands trembled, my voice cracked, and that display of nervousness tends to strip power from what we're saying, does it not? One of my favorite historical movies is a movie that came out a few years ago called The King's Speech, and it's a movie about the true story of King George IV who reigned in the United Kingdom during World War II. However, this king, although he was a king, had a stammer. He had a problem with public speaking, and so he uh, hired a speech coast because he could hear the awkward silences as he was speaking. And at the end of the movie, we see that now that he has this renewed, rejuvenated speech uh, voice, uh, everything turns out well for him. 
But Paul was trembling. There was no power in his words. There was no charisma. And to add to that, he goes, I sounded like a simpleton. He says, I had no wise or persuasive words for you, no insight to uh, provide you with, nothing to argue with you about. And what's interesting, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what's interesting is the context with which Paul is saying these things. We talked about how Paul's uh, journey to Corinth comes in Acts chapter 18. But if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that one chapter before that, Paul visited a different city. He went to Athens. And not only did he go to Athens, but he went as an academic, as a philosopher. I mean, Athens was the place for academia at this time. These were the same streets as Plato and Aristotle and Socrates all walked. And Paul's going toe-to-toe with these people in the Areopagus. And some of these people are saying, you know, you sound actually, actually, I like that. You know, I'm going to hear from you again. And some people are like, you know what, I'm actually, I'm going to come back. You know what, I believe this. But Paul here comes without a persuasive word. And what does he say to the people in Corinth? He says, I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Unlike his trip to Athens, Paul did not point out to the people in Corinth that they were trying to worship a God that they did not know. He didn't come to them like he did with his Jewish brethren with Old Testament passages proving that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. No, he he didn't come with any of those things. He simply preached the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Nothing fancy, nothing confusing or overly complicated. But friends, this is where the power of God lies. What gives Christian preaching its impact is the preaching of Christ and the cross, not wisdom or stature or rhetoric. Apollos, let's go back to the thing they said, I follow Apollos. Apollos, if you read about him in the book of Acts, was a silver-tongued individual. He was charismatic. He could grip a room, but God's power, Paul says, was not in Apollos' words. Peter, of course, was the most famous apostle. He was the the best friend of Jesus, the one who followed him, the tough guy. But Paul says, God's power doesn't come from our reputation. Paul admits that he was the hardest working apostle by God's grace. And yet Paul says, the power doesn't come from my sweat. God's power unto salvation is found in Christ and him crucified. And by way of application for us, that means that if we want to be impactful for the kingdom of God, then we ought to go where the power is. And where the power is, is preaching Christ and him crucified. But Paul also gives a reason for this as well. He says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but in the power of God. Your faith rests on God's power, not on human wisdom. So let's, let's talk about this for a second. First, why does Paul seem to pit human wisdom and God's power against one another? There, is, there can be overlaps between the two. So I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what Paul is trying to do, but I think he's pointing us to the why we believe something. Why do we take in specific messages? Like, let's talk about faith in Christ, for example. Some people, and this is actually where a lot of faith stories tend to start, some people come to faith in Christ out of fear. Mom and dad, when they're adorable four or five-year-olds and preach a fire and brimstone sermon to them about how scary hell is, and they're like, wow, hell sounds really horrible. I don't want to go there. Who's this Jesus guy? All right, I'll just believe in him. Or... Some people come to a belief in Jesus because they want to be moral people. They want to be moral individuals. And they feel like, 
well, in an atheist worldview, I can't really be a moral person, so I'm going to latch a hold to Christianity. Or some people might say, well, it's the American thing to do, and I want to be a good citizen in this country, so I'm going to be a Christian for the sake of God and country. Now, all those reasons for believing are ultimately based on human wisdom. And what you'll notice about each of them is Christ is left out of almost all of them. All of those reasons for believing are also subject to change. One of the defining features of human wisdom is that it is subject to change. Take, for example, if somebody comes to Christianity because they want to be a moral person, they might decide five years down the road, you know what, this doesn't really make me any more moral. In fact, the world has a different view of morality, so I'm going to walk away. And that's what Paul is warning us about in verse 5. But he says, the message of the cross If that's what our faith is in, it remains firm forever and ever and ever. Come back here on Christmas Eve. We're not going to be talking about anything else. We're going to be focused on the incarnation of Jesus, but we're just going to be talking about Christ and Him crucified. What Paul is warning against here is putting our faith into something flimsy and unstable. He's not asking you to lay aside human wisdom or knowledge or science or whatever definition you want to throw on it. He's asking you and pleading with you to base it on Christ and Him crucified. He's asking you to base it on God's power. But I think the second thing that Paul is getting at here in verse 5 is that human wisdom and the gospel of Jesus will always clash. It'll always clash. The life and death of Jesus will always sound ridiculous and upsetting to somebody. God declares that we focus on what is unseen. And that upsets the naturalists who might be among us who say, rely on your five senses and nothing else. God declares that our good works cannot save, and that upsets the religious and the proud who want to be justified by their own works. God declares that we are all sinful and corrupt, and that upsets the humanists who might be among us. God declares that our true citizenship is in heaven, And that upsets the nationalistic. Jesus and his gospel will always be at odds with you in some way. When you're reading your Bibles or listening to the word preached, there's going to be something that irks you. And if nothing is irking you, if you're just like, agree, 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 you might not be encountering the real Jesus. Because if you begin to study the scriptures with any sort of openness or genuineness, something is going to go against conventional wisdom. And if our faith is in human wisdom and in the ways of the world, we will abandon the faith altogether because our faith is resting on those shifting sands. And that's what Paul's warning about here. So he says, put your faith in God's power, not in human wisdom. But what do we mean by God's power? What does Paul mean by God's power? And what Paul is referring to here is the gospel itself. The gospel message itself is God's power. Think back to what he told the Roman church in the first chapter. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is what the power of God unto salvation. And this is where the Corinthians were faltering at this time because the Corinthians made human leaders and the wisdom of the world ultimate. And they had left aside the centrality of the cross. But Paul comes to them and says, no, you were You were supernaturally changed, not because you believed in a very convincing argument, but because you believed in the cross, and you believed in God's power. So with the remainder of our time, I want to talk about what specifically God's power contains. 
Where is God's power displayed in the gospel? Two places. One, it has the power to justify us. The cross of Christ, the preaching of cross of Christ and him crucified has the power to justify us, but it also has the power to sanctify us. So that's where we're going to be headed. How does the message of the cross contain the power to justify? And if you're unfamiliar with that word, it just means declare righteous. How can the cross and its message allow sinful human beings to stand before holy God holy and blameless before him. In Genesis 15, 6, God says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. So we find out very early on in the scriptures that God will justify us by faith, not by anything we do, but by believing what God has said. Our righteousness comes from faith. But how, and this is the necessary next question, how is faith produced? How do you come to this faith in Christ? And Paul, again, in Romans is helpful. He says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. So if you follow the logic, we find out that in order to be justified in God's sight, you need to have faith. And in order to have faith, you need to hear the message about Jesus. Now, this is critical for us to understand. Because I remember when I went to North Myrtle Beach... Uh, on a missionary trip. I was with crew at the time, and I remember I was prepping to go there, and I remember all I read about thinking, oh, I'm going to have all these evangelistic conversations with people on the beach. I was like, I'm just going to read about apologetics, and I'm just going to read about logical reasoning, and I'm going to have nuanced arguments for everything, and I'm going to be persuasive, and I'm going to research all of this. Now, don't get me wrong, that is important. Apologetics and the like are important. They have a wonderful place in the church, so don't hear me disparaging that. But at the same time, and I knew this from experience, my message was falling short if I left out Jesus and his cross. Let's go to an example that you might experience here in the coming weekend. You might have an unbelieving coworker or family member who comes to you, and they say, what's holding me back from trusting in Jesus and the Bible is how the Bible addresses sexuality and marriage. A few months from now, we're going to be talking about this, namely in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul writes, the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we're going to have to talk about the way the Bible addresses marriage and sex, but how would you respond to somebody who is struggling with that issue? And you might be tempted, as I once was, to argue using wisdom. Well, we can talk about the importance of the nuclear family and, and, or about premarital sex statistics and how divorce rates go down if you don't have premarital sex. Or you can talk about STD prevalence or pregnancy or something to that effect or the beauty of virginity or whatever. But none of this is going to make the impact that we think it will. None of this is going to leave somebody tear-filled in joy in the beauty of the gospel. Let me contend with you that the more impactful response that you could say to somebody like that is, you know, I believe Jesus declares all of us sexually broken, that we all deserve to be cast out of the kingdom of God and yet in love Jesus, though he never sinned in any way, came down was born of a virgin, lived the life that you and I could not, died the death that we deserved, even though we deserved to be condemned. And he rose again that we might be a people who no longer worship sex, but that we might be a people who worship God. 
that will make the deeper impact on people. Remember, in John's Gospel, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman who has been married, it says, five times, and she's now living with her sixth. But this woman was isolated, rejected by her community. And what she needed to hear at that time was not a bunch of morals or lessons on wisdom or proverbs, but she needed to sit down with someone like Jesus who could listen to her and tell her, you know, sex and marriage really isn't the end-all, be-all in this world. It's really not the ultimate in life. You see, the Creator God is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and I promise you that if you put your faith in Him, you will have satisfaction and joy that will never run dry. That's what we need to be bringing. And John tells us he went back, she went back to town, and she became the very first evangelist. There is enough wisdom and power in Jesus' name and His gospel to shut down all of our objections and make us worshipers. So when it comes to bringing people into a saving relationship with God, to see them declared justified in his sight, through faith, we must preach Christ. It's the only message that has the power to make that difference. But in addition, the message of Jesus and him crucified also contains the power to justify us, or not justify, to sanctify us to make us holy, to bring us more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And one of my favorite ways to illustrate, the, uh, illustrate this comes from a sketch from Mad TV. Um, if you are a Christmas movie fan, uh, you'll probably be watching Elf this year, and Bob Newhart uh, went on Mad TV once. If you don't know what Mad TV was, it, it was like this sketch comedy show. And Bob Newhart plays this psychologist and this really, you know, famous and impressive psychologist. And a woman comes into his office and she's struggling with anxiety, particularly anxiety about claustrophobia and, and being buried alive. And she's pouring out her soul to, to this psychologist. And he sits up in his chair and he goes, you know what? I have helped people with far worse situations than yours. And I'm going to give you two words and they're going to change your life forever. Are you ready for them? And she's like, oh, do, do, do I need to write this down? Do I need to, like, take out any notes or anything? And he's like, no, two words. You'll be you'll easy to remember. She goes, okay, what is going to cure me of my anxiety? And he looks at her dead in the face, and he just yells, stop it! <laughs> and she looks bewildered at first, and, you know, he, and she's like, what? How is that going to help with my worries and my anxiety? He's like, stop it! Stop thinking about those things! Just stop it! And she's like, oh, I... I didn't expect this. And he's like, yeah, well, it's just, it's the simple message. And he's like, do you have any other problems I can help with? <laughs> and it's, it's like, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, I know from my personal experience and from some experiences in groups and discipleship and, and all the above, I think that's kind of how we tend to disciple each other. That we kind of just hear about one another's issues and we just go, stop it! Are you struggling with anger? Well, stop being angry. Keep looking at pornography. Just stop watching it. Just throw it away. You'll be fine. Anxious? Just stop it. I think the problem living by the stop it sanctification method is that it really just doesn't have any power. Like it can't motivate us in the way that it's supposed to. Paul writes about human rules, and, and obviously he's not talking about stop it here, but he writes about human rules in Colossians chapter 2, and I love the way he says this. He says, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
there's just, there's no power. You see, friends, no one has become holy by simply screaming at themselves to be holy. Right, like even when God gives us that command in Leviticus, he says, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. You see what happened? God reminded us of his character and of his saving work. And he says, with that in view, be holy as I am holy. Almost every command in the New Testament is given to us alongside the reminder of God's character displayed in the gospel. And so we become sanctified people, not by telling ourselves to stop doing bad things, but to see the immaculate behavior of Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is talking about giving. What a conversation to be having. He's talking about financial giving. And what does he say to them? Well, you guys aren't giving enough. You're all a bunch of greedy and selfish individuals. But that's not where he goes. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He knew what would change them was Christ and him crucified. Do you want to be hospitable? You want to be a more welcoming individual? Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do you want to look more for the interests of others? Are you tired of being so selfish? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about Jesus' interaction with, I think his name is Simon the Pharisee. And the woman comes in and she's crying on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And Simon's like, that's weird, man. If he was really a prophet, he'd know something about this woman. And And Jesus looks at him and he goes, okay, let me tell you a story. A man has two debtors. One owed him $500, one owed him five. And he ended up forgiving both of them. Who's going to love him more? I guess the one who paid, the one he forgave the $500 debt to. And Jesus is like, yeah. Because those who have been forgiven much, love much. See, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to sanctify us through the display of his love toward us. You see, friends, the the holiest church in the world is not the one that seems the most puritanical, but it's in fact the one that can speak the gospel most fluently. And the solution to our problems is not to simply cease bad behavior, but to consider the immaculate behavior of Christ himself. And this is not a what would Jesus do thing in those situations. No, it's a what has Jesus done sort of thing. If you want the power to live the Christian life, then preach to yourself the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even amidst your sin. John Owen, who we met earlier, wrote in Mortification of Sin this. He says, let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he has, as he has set forth, dying and crucified for us. Look on him under the weight of our sins, praying for us, bleeding for us, dying for us. Bring him in that condition into your heart by faith. Apply his blood in order to shed your corruptions. And then he says, do this daily. If you want to be holy, if you want to be further sanctified, the power comes from the message of Christ and him crucified. And you need to be preaching it to yourself every single day. Know nothing, friends, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I know not all of us are preachers. 
But again, we are all evangelists. So we have a message to give both to sell, both to ourselves and to others, and what those people need more than anything. What will give them power not only to be sanctified, but to be justified in God's sight is to hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what will quiet a guilt-ridden, depressed soul. John Owen's life was changed that Sunday, not because he heard something impressive, not because he heard something that was full of wisdom and anything else full of insight. No, his life was changed that Sunday morning because he heard the gospel. And he heard the message about Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I'll end with one more quote from that great theologian. Owen wrote this, The glory of Christ in the divine constitution of his person is the best, the most noble, the most useful, the most beneficial object that we can be conversant about in our thoughts or cleave unto in our affections. So friends, this Christmas, may Jesus and him crucified be your meditation, for he came into the world to seek and to save the lost.